Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks, sir. I'll have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Irish Times. Second Captain's Football Podcast uh, with me, Ken, and uh, Kieran Murphy. Hey there, Kenny. No sign of Owen today. No. I believe he's uh, over in London at the moment. Um, he will be back on Monday, and I'm sure he's having a good time. I mean, to be honest, I haven't heard much from him. I haven't contacted him since he's been away. My philosophy is, if he's away on a break, he probably doesn't want to hear from me. You, uh, obviously, we have a WhatsApp group here for the uh, the uh, Second Captain, Captain News. Yeah. Uh, and the couple of times that you've gone on holiday since this WhatsApp group has been formed, you immediately leave the group. <laughs> well, I don't hear about like who's getting coffee or. No, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. It's just, it's it's it, the first time I saw it. It just seemed a little cold. Well, it wasn't cold. I mean, you got. To I, I, I understand now where you're coming from, Ken. Yeah, obviously, absolutely. but just at the time, I'm just telling you honestly our reaction in the office when your flight was leaving it. You know, say at ten o'clock, and at nine fifty nine, Ken Early has left the WhatsApp group. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's you can sometimes you can hear too much. You gotta you gotta be able to have a time of tranquility, of peace, and of quiet. And I hope that Owen's found that over in uh, over in London. Mm. I mean, I don't know where he's staying. Um, I, I imagine it's probably somewhere pretty nice. M- maybe not as nice as the Borough Lack Hotel um, in Zurich. Mm. Which has become the place where FIFA officials uh, get arrested. A couple more FIFA vice presidents arrested there in a dawn raid. What do you think? What do you think the PR department of the hotel is thinking there? I mean, it's get, it's gotten a lot of coverage. I mean, the, it's, the it's name the, of the hotel it's is mainly known for under the police uh, busting into the. I mean, but it, Ken, yeah. it is also known for extraordinarily rich uh, fat cats. Yeah. Who lo- who enjoy throwing out the idea that they're that they're rich and that they are fat cats? I'm at the borough like yeah. Oh, it's I where Vifa stay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of if if I would say immediately wherever a Fifa exco committee member is, you're probably not a million miles away from you know some pretty high grade hotels, food, etc. And they do they do um, look after their patrons. I mean, I remember when the, when the first round of arrests were made in what May or June. Seeing the uh, concierge with a uh, with a sheet, holding up, creating a screen of discretion behind which these FIFA officials are being bundled out, and that's the way it is at these top hotels. You know, a friend of mine was once arrested in a top a top hotel in London <laughs> by the police who came to his room. He there'd been some kind of an incident, you know, in the bar. Uh, the police came a to his room. Coming together of some coming together of a face and a fist, I mm. think. Anyway, um, police. <laughs> Police came to bundle him out at dawn. You know, it was, mm. it was unfortunate. But uh, as he was being, as he was being kind of not frog marched, but you know, led out by the cops, mm. um, the concierge sort of tipped his head and said, "Good morning, sir." <laughs> <laughs> and then, as he returned back, back to the hotel several hours later, you know, having been through the disgrace of the police interview and so on and so mm. forth, he was like, "Good afternoon, sir." <laughs> so, totally unruffled, and uh, you know, that's you get what you pay for. Mm. When you go to a place like that, so yeah, I'm sure yeah, at least uh, 
part of the top class uh, fare that they've become accustomed to there. Yeah. And an all knowing but uh, extremely discreet concierge. I guess it's time for my report on sport. So, uh, where are we going to start? We're going to start Gary Neville. I mean, yesterday morning, I, I was uh, cycling around, stopped at traffic lights, looked at my phone. Someone had mentioned something about Gary Neville going to Valencia, which I thought was, well, I, I don't know why that person was saying They were saying it to me. Uh, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that would be kind of interesting. I suppose Phil's there. Then it turned out when I, you know, a few minutes later got off the bike, it was, no, this has actually happened. Gary Neville really has become the manager of Valencia until the end of the season. This is amazing. Mm. How does Phil feel? Was the you know, first thought. I'm oh, poor Phil. He is going to be the manager, I, I believe... Uh, against Barcelona this weekend. Phil, not Phil. Phil, Phil Neville will be the manager of, of Valencia, who have to play Barcelona at uh, 7.30 this weekend. 7.30, I'm not sure whether that's our time or, or Spanish time. But uh, Gary will take over immediately after that. He didn't want to make his very first game a 7-0 home defeat against Suarez, Messi uh, and Neymar. I, mean, I suppose he needs time to, to get to know the squad. I don't know why he couldn't just take over. Why don't you just take over? You're playing against Barcelona. Phil can fill you in mm. on... I mean, I wouldn't have a problem with this if the assistant manager that was about to... That, that, you know, that you were about to take over from wasn't your brother. I mean, I would 100% be saying, yeah, well, you can, you know... You, you started... The week's training has already begun. Uh, nameless Spanish assistant coach. Yeah. You should, you know, see it through. But it's your when it's your brother. I mean, Phil Neville's head coach career numbers yeah. are not going to be good by the end of this week. No. I mean, he's managed one game, one hundred percent loss record, goals for, goals against. I don't, I don't wish to speculate, but it's probably not going to look amazing. Well, we're saying we're we're saying this, but of course, maybe Gary Neville is is counting on the the uh, effect of the fact that all his players will know that he's there watching. Well, maybe he won't be in the stadium, but he'll be watching. And this is a new era for Valencia. Um, Valencia, who are owned or controlled by a friend of Garnell's, Peter Lim, uh, an entrepreneur uh, of, uh, from Singapore, uh, who's got various business interests with him. Uh, we will talk to Sid Lowe about this in a little bit more detail, but just some of the things that have been said about this. Two people's reactions I want to bring to you. First of all, Alex Ferguson. Um, quite why he was talking about it who knows but he said Gary has many attributes that suggest he will be successful in management his leadership skills are strong he's honest and he's hard working he's the type of character who's not afraid of making big decisions which is a vital skill when leading that's Alex Ferguson who's just permanently stuck in corporate um, speech mode now he literally can't he, he almost cannot frame his thoughts in any other way uh, there it is again. Sorry, what's that? What was the word that he decided was a key part of successful management? A there? vital skill when leading. Mm. It's interesting that because just coming up to Christmas, I suppose a lot of people <laughs> will be spending time in bookshops. Uh, don't buy Alex Ferguson's book "Leading" with Mike Morris. Really, don't buy the book. It is a terrible, terrible book. It's horseshit, Ken. <laughs> it really is. So leave it out. Don't don't bother with it. But that's that's Ferguson anyway. Chapter he, seven. Focus. Actually, I'm never going to open this book again. Focus is a vital skill when leading. It's a complete waste of time. But um, the the person uh, with a more interesting reaction to all this is, I believe, Richard Keyes. Mm. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Now, this is Richard Keyes, remember, who has been, um, for the last, basically, as long as Gary Neville's been on Sky, has been trolling Gary Neville. There's, there's just been this low-level troll campaign going on from Richard Keyes about, oh, uh, you want to take the easy way out? Oh, you want to go, oh, you want to earn a lot of money for sitting in a nice, comfortable chair in a TV studio uh, and chicken at you too much of a... to go and manage in the game. The game. You've got so much to offer the game. So why don't you offer it? You know, this has been his mm. thing for ages and I, I mean didn't get did Gary Neville come in as Richard Keyes was booted out was is has Gary Neville's time at Sky almost exactly begun when with Richard Keyes' exit I mean did, did he effectively replace was there an overlap I can't there even remember if there was there was a small overlap I believe yeah 
but um, but uh, Richard Keyes' blog is give the give the full blog address to be fair. Richard AJ Keyes, and he's a stunning, absolutely stunning. Not Gary Neville's decision to take the Valencia job, but Liverpool's demolition of Southampton. We'll get round to Neville later. Turns out that the reason Keyes wants to do this is to talk about um, Daniel Sturridge. Uh, and he says, this is right. He says, uh, uh, oh, I can now answer all your questions about when Brendan Rodgers will be joining us on B in Sports early January next year. Okay, so then there's one, two, three, four paragraphs which talk about Jurgen Klopp and Daniel Sturridge. Fifth paragraph after that says, he's talking about Daniel Sturridge's lack of mental strength. Mm. Right? He's a guy who oftentimes doesn't want to play. He doesn't play enough. In fact, I believe there are long spells when he doesn't want to play at all, says Keezy. And anyway, he says, this little story also bothers me. When Suarez left Liverpool, Rodgers invited Sturridge to be his new talisman. He offered him the iconic number nine jersey and told him to, quote, lead from the front, unquote. Sturridge turned him down. I'm told he didn't want the pressure. That's also in quotes. I believe that Rogers lost patience with him during the conversation in his office right there and then. I would have done too. So. It's it's mad how well connected Richard Keyes remains to, to English football. That is amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, it's a bit like the story that came out a couple of weeks ago. What was it about some transfer committee messing up the signing of Della Ali. Except this is an even more interesting story because there were only two people in that room. <laughs> Daniel Sturridge and Brendan Rogers, who is joining Richard Keyes and B in Sports uh, next month. You can you can see that. Anyway, um he so having the it turns out though that Richard Keyes, I mean and you gotta say this guy knows his way around journalism, right? Mm. He's not just talking about Daniel Sturridge just because he thinks Daniel Sturridge is an interesting thing to talk about in and of itself. Daniel Sturridge now becomes a stick with which to beat Gary Neville. Well done, Gary Neville. I'm delighted. We've discussed here previously the worrying trend for modern-day ex-pros to take, shall we call it, the Sturridge option. <laughs> in other words, just sort of chickening out generally of, of things. Um... Uh, they're all. Uh, I hope Neville's decision stirs one or two of the others with sturridgeitis. Rio and Jamie Carragher are wasted in TV studios. They've got far too much to offer the game. Uh, but the most interesting part of of what he says, and I don't just talk about Richard Keyes, but this is this is genuinely interesting. He says uh, about Gary Neville. We read that Sky offered him a five-year, fifteen million pound deal because Gary Neville has left Sky. His contract with Sky is mm. terminated. He's not going to be there anymore. I'm glad he wasn't daft enough to fall for that. Skeezy. No contracted Sky is for longer than six months, as Andy Gray found out. They'll offer that when they want to get rid of you and set the attack dogs on you if you don't settle. They're dreadful people at the top of the organization. So that's uh, Richard Keyes' view on his former employers. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting move. Neville goes over to Valencia, uh, never been a manager before. Brother has to make way for him again. Uh, has done coaching badges. Uh, has got a philosophy on the game, which he expounded. If in fact one of the one of the most interesting things, or if you if you wanted to get an idea of what kind of football manager Gary Neville might be, a good place to check would be I think Graham Hunter's podcast. With him. Graham Hunter's podcast series, the first episode of it was with Gary Neville. Yeah, it was excellent. The Yup Hankers Bayern Munich of 2013. Mm. This would, was would appear to be Gary's Gary's idea of an ideal football team. So his idea is like a little bit of everything. It's not like too much, not too much of an emphasis on one way of playing, but rather a team that's able to attack, a team that's able to defend, a, a team that's able to, you know, head the ball in at a corner kick, but also able to finish off a twenty-pass team move. Uh, this is it. this is what Gary Neville thinks is is it's all about. I mean, he thinks that the twenty uh, two thousand and nine Barcelona is better than the two thousand and eleven more sort of purist version, which I disagree with. And then that the uh, the 2013 Bayern Munich was better than the current one, um, which on trophies would, is difficult to argue with. But again, you know, I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, but this, I guess, is the kind of thing he's going to try and do at Valencia. Some of the old-fashioned virtues. I think he I think he used that phrase in that they've lost some of their old virtues. Um, this is the kind of thing Guardiola had purified out of Bayern. You know, aerial ability, 
you know, organization that set pieces, blah, blah, blah. You know, just this old-fashioned, sharp-elbowed kind of stuff, which Gary Neville um, thinks still needs to be part of the game. Yeah, I was... Well, having listened to that, I, I would say that it did, it did kind of sound like these two brilliant teams... My, my idea of a really good football team is a combination of these two really brilliant teams, which, in fairness... You know, I'm, I'm sure the Valencia players will look for a little bit more than that. Other than, we're looking for a 2013 Bayern Munich plus 2012 Barcelona. Uh, <laughs> you guys, Manchester United. Yeah, you guys ready to ready to go out there and kick some ass? <laughs> um, look, he, you know, he's been able to express himself very well. Uh, you know, on, and he's been able to explain concepts. Well, you see players tweeting about him. Um, you know, when he's on TV saying, oh, this is great. You know, Gary Neville's, you know, making that little, um, what's that gesture called? The little emoji with the finger and the, the thumb and index finger making a circle and the other fingers. Of, what's that, what is that gesture called? Uh, it, it basically means good or, you know, very yeah. good. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I don't know if he can speak Spanish. I mean, he, he was on Twitter uh, <laughs> recently. I saw, was it uh, John Bruin retweeting? Um, Gary Neville uh, retweeting Phil Neville. Phil Neville obviously has been in Valencia for a while, so he tries occasionally to do a little bit of Spanish. Mm. And Philip Neville, Fizzer, at Fizzer18, tweets, Buenos dias, amigos. Entrenamiente más tarde hoy. Esta mañana me relajo. Four exclamation marks. Five exclamation marks. Gary Neville quotes this tweet and says, quote, It's a good morning for my relative who is a banana. Unquote. <laughs> so he's sort of you know, suggesting that's what Phil's yeah. saying. Phil is in fa- in, uh, actually saying something like, training is later, but now I relax. Uh, uh, so there you go. I mean, he'll have to probably teach uh, Gary a little bit of Spanish. Anyway, uh, we will talk to Sid about that, and particularly how the Valencia might be, because everybody knows a lot about Gary Neville, I think, at this stage. It's a question more of the club that he's going into and how the Valencia fans are going to feel about this. Uh, move and how big Gary Neville is over in Spain as well. Yeah, because if, this is obviously huge news here, but maybe if you're over there, it's like, oh, what's the big deal about this? Eyebrow. Um, so uh, no fun, no banter. Manchester United players remain unhappy. <laughs> this is so. This is a this is another story in the Daily Mail. Um, uh, let me just read the actual story. Manchester United's players remain unhappy with Louis van Gaal's rigid style of management with some complaining privately over the Dutchman's, quote, separate club, unquote, routine before matches. So basically, under Fergie and Moisey, even Moisey's now being compared favourably to Louis van Gaal by certain players. The squad used to have time to themselves after dinner. Now they have to attend a series of tedious meetings lasting several hours at the team hotel before gathering for a 10pm supper of cereal and toast. Um, I don't understand this. I mean... Is that... Uh, oh, that must be the day before. It's the day before the match. I was like looking at that going, 10 p.m. before the match? I don't get this. No, 10 p.m. before the match. For home games, Van Hal's players usually eat a dinner of chicken and pasta at their Carrington training base before leaving for Manchester's Larry Hotel. The meetings and supper are followed by 10.30 p.m. bedtime. So they're complaining that uh, apparently there's no fun and no banter uh, and this is, you know it's boring for the players. I mean, what do you think of that? I wonder where that story comes from. I find it hard to believe that it actually comes from one of the Manchester United players. I'm not sure that it does. I think it yeah. maybe comes from somebody who spoke to a player and is translating it. I mean, it almost sounds like the kind of thing Paul Scholes would say, but I'm sure I'm sure it didn't come from Paul Scholes. No fun and no banter, though. Yeah. Not like in the old days when Scholes, he would, you know, ping it. You know, you'd go off to the bushes, you know, to answer nature's call, and suddenly... Scholes, he's... Pinging a ball off your head from cracking one yards. off, cracking one off your head, you know, and the whole place falling around laughing. It was a totally different club then, of course. Mm. It's not quite as funny when those balls like just go ten yards past the person's head. You know, then yeah. the person who's kicked it probably has to go collect the ball. Yeah, that's not bad at all. There's zero crack in that, Ken. Yeah, I don't know. Um, supper club, really. This is this is uh, this is the. Best I mean, one the, yet. I would say the day before a game that there would be numerous team meetings. I mean, isn't that... That's kind of professional sport, isn't it, really? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I would have thought that 
a couple of team meetings are to be expected, although hours of te- a series of tedious meetings lasting several hours doesn't sound great. Mm. Uh, I mean, it would be interesting if that really was the case, but I don't know. It's just um, uh, plenty of just all the news seems to be it's just this drip drip of kind of negativity, you know, surrounding Lee Van Hal, which I'm not sure how justified it is. Anyway, though, um, uh, what the other news today was that FIFA are apparently uh, considering expanding the World Cup to 40 teams. Mm. This is um, apparently to come in in 2026. Now, I think I find this kind of an interesting thing. I mean, okay, FIFA have obviously done this several times already. Um, but really to bring it up, I mean, they've gone to 24 to 32 and now to 40. They keep adding, you know, eight teams. And if they do, did add eight teams, okay, it would be easier for some countries to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, at the moment, what, how many Asian countries do you have in the World Cup? Two or three? Or is it maybe three if they win the playoff? Africa gets, I think, five. You know. Oceania aren't uh, guaranteed one at all. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Africa, it's, it's roughly one in ten countries, like one in ten uh, countries that get to the World Cup. Whereas in Europe, it's, you know, one in four, between one in three and one in four. So if you're in Africa, you're looking at that going, that's not fair. Um, and I and I imagine that most of these eight new World Cup places will be allocated um, to Asia and Africa because, you know, that's how you grow the game, I suppose, and not really by giving extra places to Europe. So I don't think it would be something that would, in the way that the Euro expansion obviously helped Ireland to qualify for this tournament, it's not going to be a thing for Ireland that way. What it is, is, a, is uh, it means that the, the group of countries that can host the World Cup has just got even smaller. If this is to be brought in, you've got a situation where there's only a tiny handful of countries and you never aspire to host the World Cup, especially uh, on the specs that FIFA have kind of laid out where you've got to build all these stadiums. They all have to be of a certain mm. um, standard. And really, it's, it's, it's I mean, we'll, we'll talk in our other program as well about the Olympics and the sort of desirability of sports events, uh, sports mega events in general. I think these things are going out of fashion in a big way. I mean, we saw last week... Hamburg, um, Hamburg was supposed to vote for the Olympics, or was the city of Hamburg and the state of Hamburg wanted to vote for the wanted to uh, bid for to host the Olympics, and there was such opposition to it that they eventually had to have a vote on it, and the vote was defeated. Same and the, thing happened in Boston as well. That mm. having uh, at first announced their candidature as a, a as an Olympic venue, just the the uh, outcry from locals was so fierce. That they just said it's not worth the hassle, so yeah. you can take our name off the list. Just I mean, to waste I, money. I would say this: um, uh, the Middle East is within, you know, a four-hour flight of nearly the entire population of the world. With the w- w- apart from United States, Mexico, Australia. I mean, if you're to- if you're saying Africa, Asia, and Europe, all within maybe a five-hour flight of mm. Qatar. Yeah. The 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 same thing to do here. Is actually just give it to Qatar every in perpetuity. They're building the stadia. The stadia will be there. Yeah. Uh, we found a spot in the, on the calendar for it now that suits everyone. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's that's probably where we're going with this. Just uh, the Qatar FIFA World Cup every four years. And and Olympics. Um, It'll become a key part of the build up to Christmas every year. No one would have to worry about how much it costs. There'd be no more of these Montreal situations. Yeah. It would just be a case of they they can't be white elephants in the yeah. desert because every four years they get they used to get for another World Cup. Yeah, it's actually one of the better ideas that I've heard. It's such a good idea that that it will have to bring this um, reporting sport to a halt and ruminate on it until we get to talk to Sidlow. FIFA made a movie recently. Did uh, they? John Delaney could run anything. They did. They did. About themselves. Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Zach Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you, with one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, well, I do. And that was it, with one or two expletives. And I just asked her to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here to tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds, and I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. 
when I went in and told them how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive used, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement for FBI. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. We're joined now on the line by Sid Lowe. And Sid, I was listening to yourself and Phil Kittrow talking about um, the weekend Spanish football, the Spanish football podcast. And there was at that stage a vacancy at Valencia. Um, but the name of Gary Neville didn't come up in your conversation. It sounds as though this has really come out of the blue. What was your reaction when you heard the news yesterday? Uh, well, my first reaction was, bloody hell, Gary Neville. <laughs> um, it, it was it was unexpected. Um, into, well, I mean, it was unexpected in, 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 in the sense that nobody nobody anticipated that he would be the new Valencia manager. I think when you take a step back from it, of course, it all falls into place. And, and, and on, the, on the face of it, after the event, it all seems extraordinarily logical. Maybe not necessarily from a purely footballing point of view, but in terms of his, his relationship with Peter Lim, in terms of the fact that, that Phil Neville is already there and so on. Uh, but yeah, without there's no doubt about it. My initial response was, Bloody hell, Gary Neville. Well, when you say it all falls into place, can you explain uh, why that is, why this fits together so neatly? I mean, obviously some people will know this, but but for those who don't, um, Gary Neville, of course, is is very much the leader of the class of 92, the group of, of Manchester United players who are involved in the in the construction of, of, of a whole series of actual, actually a whole series of construction projects in Manchester, in particular the football hotel near Old Trafford. They are the owners of, of Salford City. Um, and the key thing is that their, their most significant business partner is Peter Lim, the owner of Valencia, is, is a half owner of Salford City, has been involved in the other projects of, of, of class of 92, someone that they knew when he was running Manchester United's, uh, I think they were called the Asian Red Cafes, um, and, and they met him while on tour as players. Their relationship with Lim, in particular Gary Neville's relationship, he's, he's clearly the most driven, the most ambitious, the most business-minded of, of the class of 92. His relationship with Lim has been very close for a long time. And, of course, that explains, um, at least in part, why Valencia went for Phil Neville as the assistant coach in the summer. Um, Phil Neville, who didn't necessarily have a direct contact with Nuno, whereas Nuno's previous assistant manager was a contact of his own, which, of course, is Ian Caffro, who's now at Newcastle. Um, so Phil Neville came in, I think, as a, as a kind of decision made at club level, at ownership level in the summer. And so I suppose when you start to, to kind of pick at the threads, then Gary Neville becomes a relatively natural choice now in that context. Now, that context, I think could potentially prove to be problematic in terms of the way that the fans uh, respond to this. But, of course, it all depends on, on how successful he is. And I think we, we, we all believe, um, those, those who've seen a lot of, of Gary Neville, I think we all believe that he certainly has the ambition, the analytical mind, the intelligence, the, the drive, the personality to be a success. But this is a, a difficult job he's going into. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things that go to, to make up a manager. Gary Neville's clearly got quite a few of them. And it always helps to be friends with the uh, chairman. Um, that's, my, that's my small doubt though Ken yeah. I mean obviously on the face of it it helps to be friends of the chairman but when you go into um, a club and, and perhaps these are Spanish words, Spanish terms that don't mean a huge amount in England but, but from a Spanish perspective you go into a club that is socially fractured in other words there's, there's a sense of, of, of mistrust between fans and club there's a doubt about where the club's really going what its true intentions are so being being if you like supported by the by the by the hierarchy, in this case, directly by the owner, obviously puts you in a stronger position in terms of are you as likely to be sacked and so on. But it, but it does create doubts and it creates suspicion, some of which may not be fair amongst the fans. Now, the clearest example of this is what has happened to Nuno Espirito Santo, the previous manager. Now, Nuno was very definitely Georgie Mendes's man, and Georgie Mendes is, has always been seen as the kind of the power behind the throne at Valencia, the guy making decisions, the guy choosing who they buy, which just happened to be his players, choosing who they sell and who to and for what kind of price, which again includes some of his players. And because Nuno was close to Mendes, now that in theory reinforced his position, in particular in the summer when the club had got rid of the president and the sporting director. It made Nuno the, the most powerful figure at the club in theory. But of course, what it also did was that all of the doubts that surround the club in terms of why are we signing him, which direction are we going, and so on, that the fans had become focused on one person, which is Nuno. And Nuno takes not just the blame for his own mistakes, which were many, but also mistakes of the club or doubts about the club, suspicions about the club. So he became, if you like, the, the, the figurehead of a, of a triumvirate of power, which was Mendes, Lim, and him. Now, Neville, of course, comes in, and this is a conscious attempt from Valencia 
to not be seen to be choosing another Mendes person, to back away from that a little bit, which I think is the right thing to do socially and politically. But, of course, if things go wrong and there are continuing doubts about the club's mechanism, then Neville will, will, like Nuno before him, not just take the blame for what may or may not go wrong with him, but will take the blame for what may or may not go wrong at an institutional level because he will be seen as the owner's in position. And, of course, there's a bottom line, which is the owner's in position of a guy with no... No first, um, you know, first team coach experience at a very, very big club. Yeah, I mean, this this is, I suppose, the problem. You know, I mean, he. It's one thing to say, okay, we're gonna, you know, George Mendes won't be quite as influential as before. But then, you know, when the chairman chooses his mate to come in, it looks, uh, it doesn't necessarily look as though maybe the 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 method at the top of the, at the top of the club has changed. Well, could you talk to us a little bit about George Mendes' role? Because um, it seems as though Valencia are one of a few clubs around Europe. Uh, maybe you could look at clubs like Porto, uh, Atletico Madrid, Monaco, Besiktas, um, where the, it almost seems these days that the primary role of the club is to sign players, uh, fatten them up and sell them off uh, to, uh, to, to another uh, select handful of bigger, richer clubs, uh, with George Mendes in the middle of that process making a ton of money. I mean, that's what's happening in Valencia. Well, that's that's precisely the, the the problem, and part, precisely the reason why there's been this kind of social fracture. Because that is certainly the suspicion that, that Valencia's fans have started to have, um, and that they started to believe that, for example, you know, why why was Nicolas Otamendi bought in? It turned out he was a very good player, and he played really well for us, and, and we were pleased that this Mendes player came to us. But then the following summer, he goes. Well, if if and their argument is that if Mendes is truly involved in this project, why aren't his players? who become good, then encouraged to stay rather than moved on for, for a profit. Why why do four or five Mendes players come over the course of the summer who actually we then think, nah, he's not that good? Because, of course, if Mendes becomes involved in your club and he brings you um, Jose Mourinho and Cristiano Ronaldo and Angel Di Maria and David De Gea, you say, ah, this is all right, isn't it? But the, the suspicion is that the, the, the driving factor is is not the desire to make the club grow. That's the, That's the problem that the fans have now i i in all of this i'm, I'm a little cautious or uneasy is maybe the word in, in all of this because this is an analysis that i think it's natural that people make and i'm not sure if it's all it's always fair but it's natural that people reach those conclusions it's natural therefore that that impinges upon the 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 nature of the relationship between the clubs uh sorry between the club's owners and, and its fans it changes the way that people see decisions it means that every decision made is seen through this lim mendez prism and every decision is like, well, you know. And that reaches players as well, by the way. And to give you an example, a, a kid called Rafa Mir, 19-year-old, played for Valencia in the Champions League last week. Um, and Valencia players, players, uh, asked whether this kid was any good, because, of course, this is a kid who's, you know, people haven't seen yet. And their, their, their response is, well, he's represented by Mendes. And if you get into a situation in which even the players at the club are like that, then, then inevitably that really undermines everything. Now, that's part of the job that Neville has now, is to, to persuade the players that he's on their side, to persuade them that they're doing things the right way, to persuade the fans that are heading in the right direction. And I have absolutely no doubt that Neville's personal ambition is about getting the managerial role right, about doing this the right way, about not necessarily putting players in for, for non-footballing reasons. The, the doubt is, of course, whether he will succeed doing that and whether fans will believe that that's the case. There's a, there's a phrase that gets used a lot in, in Spanish. I, I must confess, I'm not sure if I've ever heard it in English, which is you don't just have to be, um, what's the phrase? You don't just have to be, it's like the, the, the Caesar's wife. You don't have to just have to be. Must be seen uh, to be above uh, suspicion as well as. Exactly. Being. You don't just have to be above suspicion. You have to be seen to be above suspicion. And I think that's problematic for Valencia now. Yeah. Who was the last manager to actually succeed there? Well, this is, you see, in a weird way, and this is, this is kind of, again, I hate to kind of give a, a, a sort of an answer full of caveats and, and escape clauses, but, but in a way, Nuno was, yeah. because Nuno came and he got them back in the Champions League after a three-year absence. Yeah. Um, it feels like Valencia spit managers out and they've all failed, and, and obviously, in terms of this particular sacking, Nuno had failed this season, but they did get back into the Champions League, which wasn't as easy as it appeared to be. They're under huge pressure to do so, and actually thought they performed reasonably well last year, admittedly with no European competition, with no Copa del Rey competition, because they were knocked out quite early. Uh, and in that sense, their, their coast was clear, and they only, they only got there on the last day. But they did do so. Before that, Unai Emery made the Champions League, finishing third three years in a row. But it was never seen as enough by fans or by the environment around the club, by the media, by even people at the club. And so it's curious, in all this time of crisis, 
there have actually been some managers who've done all right. Ernesto Valverde, who left after after a short period there to go to Atleti Bilbao, was seen as having been successful, but then walked away because there was an institutional um, power vacuum, which meant there was basically no one there to sign him up on a new contract. So he went. So it, it, it's it's a difficult one to answer that. It feels like everyone's failing, but actually on one level or another, some of them have been sort of successful. Do you remember you did a piece a while ago about the, uh, there was like a photograph of, uh, was it like it's the Barcelona team of 1995-96 winning the Super Cup, was it? Was that, I don't know. It was the, it was the team that won the 96-97 team that won the Super Cup and there were four, four members of it who, who were Champions League coaches, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically everybody in this photograph, or, you know, there was a few people who hadn't, but almost everybody in it had, had gone on to become a, a trainer. They, uh, you know, it was kind of, um, uh, it showed the extent to which this Barcelona school has kind of dominated, uh, or has, co- has come to dominate sort of coaching in Europe, or been one of the dominant strands of it. Is Alex Ferguson's Manchester United the opposite of that? I'm trying to think of all the managers who've played for Ferguson, and gone on. I mean, I'm thinking of guys like Bruce, Keane, Robson, Ince. Uh, I mean, they don't immediately leap necessarily. They leap to mind more as players. I mean, Neville maybe can become the first guy to come from the Ferguson school who wasn't a really terrible manager. <laughs> well, I mean, it's curious, isn't it? Because with, with Ferguson, when people talk about the, 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 the sort of the Ferguson players who might make really good coaches, we, we're still sort of hanging on waiting for, for Solskjaer, aren't we? Yeah, well, I mean, he, might, he, he had a bad experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you look at, you're right, you look at those coaches, and, and I guess, look, there will be people who say it's not fair to say that, that, that Steve Bruce hasn't done reasonable things as a coach and so on. But He's the only I one. Think, I mean, he's really the only one. It, it is curious, isn't it? Because the, And it, it suggests uh, maybe the creation of a different type of model, which therefore, even even if not directly, perhaps indirectly, conditions players' minds in a different way, which is perhaps less conducive to, to management. Um, it might be that he just didn't have the, the, the sort of same level of players, the same players with the same degree of charisma. But it, it is hard to, to to kind of get a handle on that, isn't it? We don't, Obviously, we don't know what Neville's going to be like, and I, I can't claim, unlike quite a lot of the British media, of course, I, I can't claim to really know him very well. I, I, can, I can only judge based on, on some of the things that, that, of course, he's written and some of his broadcasts, where, where he comes across as very, very impressive indeed. But that's a, obviously a different environment to this, so, so, so we don't know. It's also interesting, I don't know, and, and I'd like to find this out today when, when Neville is presented, what, what his plan is. He signed a contract at the end of the season. Does he go then, or is that just a short-term contract just because it is a short-term contract? Is his plan to stay here for a long time? Is his plan to become a big name at Valencia? Or is this part of building blocks towards something else for him? This is an experience that he feels he has to gain, perhaps, so that he can then go on and manage, for argument's sake, Manchester United. Or maybe he's so involved in the England setup that he wants to become the next England manager, perhaps fast-tracked into that with this experience. Or maybe he just doesn't want to manage at all. Maybe all of those business um, ventures that, that he's involved in will, will, will end up driving him just as much he's extraordinarily ambitious by all accounts and i think possibly ambitious in 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 more areas than simply football yeah he's busy isn't he as as one of his teammates um someone once famously famously said how do you think he's going to get on so what's your what's your good feeling today with absolutely no information i'm just asking you to go out of the and say is gary neville going to succeed or fail at valencia my gut feeling is he succeeds, and I, and I tell you why. You say no information, but perhaps a little bit of information, which is the sense that I think the, the internal dynamics were so poor in the Valencia dressing room that while it's true that their squad is possibly not as good as some people wanted to believe, it's far too good to be where it currently is, which is ninth in the table and playing fairly abysmal football most weeks. Um, and I and I think Neville can 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 try and repair some of that. Also, and, and this hasn't really been talked about, but I think it is of some significance. I've been told since the very start of the season that the players really didn't like Nuno. And then the dot, dot, dot comes in and the dot, dot, dot is, but they really like Phil. Um, and so, so Gary Neville actually has, has a kind of a bridge figure there. And it's very rare, isn't it, for a manager to take over a club midway through the season and go into it knowing so much about it. Um, and and I, I find that a, a kind of curious and, and, and quite interesting scenario.
Yeah. Okay. Well, I think everyone's going to, suddenly everyone is, Valencia has shot up everyone's list of who to watch uh, over the weekends here, uh, I think. Now the Colonel. Say, Ken, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I hadn't properly appreciated just how big Neville was in England until this happened yesterday. I mean, obviously, you know, look, the guy who's played for nearly 20 years for Manchester United, won the European Cup, is a TV pundit and all the rest of it. But, but I, the the reaction and the 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 the, the excitement that this this created yesterday in England, I've not seen anything like it since Beckham. Um, it was it was really quite quite extraordinary. Oh well, he is on he is on TV a lot. I mean, he's like the father of the nation. Yeah, I've, I, living in Spain, perhaps I simply hadn't probably hadn't fully appreciated that. That is one of the. So so, do you think in general in is this a bit like when sort of Maurizio Pellegrino arrived at Liverpool, or I mean, <laughs> I mean, is, is Gary Neville in Spain just sort of like. Uh, uh, say the way Salgado is in England. I mean, are we talking? Yeah, I mean, so Neville, Neville in Spain is is not a massive, massive big deal. That's certainly true. But it is also true that Neville in Spain is is admired. I, I've had people say to me, "Are you sure?" And yeah, absolutely. Talking to people here um, because you know it's Manchester United for twenty years, and that Manchester United team carried a lot of weight here. Was seen as being somehow well, not somehow, in very many ways, completely different to what happens at Spanish clubs. To being seen as as, as a kind of a model of 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 how to run a club with the stability and the success and so on, and Neville was seen as as the embodiment of that. In fact, from my point of view, seen as as a bigger player for that United team in Spain than I'd ever really honestly appreciated him being in England. Because you know, you ask about the great Ferguson teams, and 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 to be honest, it you have to go through eight, nine, maybe ten players before I got down to Neville. Um, whereas in Spain, he was he was this big guy at Man United, and and yeah, I guess he was, but he's certainly not as big as. As he is in England, and I think it also, as you, you rightly said, there he's on the telly a lot. I think we're, we're seeing the power of the power of someone who's who's proven to be a very, very good communicator on an extremely powerful platform, uh, and that has been, in in terms of the English um, analysis of him or, or evaluation of him, it seems to me that has been more important than, than any kind of practical impact of what he's done as a, as a coach, for example, with England team. Yeah, that's great, Sid. I'm sure we'll be talking to you about Gary Neville uh, many times. <laughs> Hope so. Why do you think it might be, Kieran, that the dominant school in English football over the last 20 years, the Alex Ferguson Manchester United uh, school, has not managed to, has not created this generation of great managers coming out of it in the way that the Cruyff Barcelona, I mean, Cruyff was at Barcelona for only a couple of years. I mean, what, f- five or six years? Obviously, he he was very successful. But for a, sh- for a relatively short period, compared to Ferguson's, you know, 26, 27 year tyranny. Mm. Um, well, maybe that's the reason. The word you just used there. Tyranny. Yeah. He didn't encourage Instead thinking. of it being a school of football. <laughs> it I mean, you like know, a... It, it is a, it is a, a fairly well-worn uh, trope at this stage, but the idea that it, it was the, the individual charisma of Ferguson rather than a, right, well, I can stand here in front of you. Anyone could be telling you what I'm telling you yeah. because it's so good tactically that... You will go out and win games. You know, if there was like a manager Tron three thousand telling me, t- telling you what I'm about to tell you, yeah, you would be able to understand it. You would then go and win games. Oh, and- hang on, try. Oh, you stand there, I stand here. The ball pass, I run here. Oh, I see. I get it now. Yeah. Effing get effing stuck in. <laughs> said it like a governed accent. Well, I mean, it is interesting. I that- mean, that's obviously like a shameful. Uh, diminution of Alex Ferguson's tactical news, but I mean that's uh, that would be the, that would be what people would would think. Maybe. I do think that that maybe um, whatever it was that he was doing was difficult to copy. And he certainly hasn't been able to explain it. I mean, look at his boring book over there, leading just this turgid nonsense, this waffle. He, it's not like he's been able to isolate, reverse engineer, you know, the secret mm. of his own brilliance. Um, and when you look at the guys who have been, who uh, the the managers who I mean Bruce, I mean Sid, Sid was defending Bruce there, and I was unfair to Bruce. Bruce has, Bruce has had a good career in management, you know what I mean? Just because he hasn't necessarily managed to get a job a at a trophy. big club or win a bit, win a big trophy, he still has done well, you know. I mean at at some clubs, I mean he's also done bad. I mean he got was pretty bad at Sunderland, got relegated just last season with Hull. Um, well, you know, he's. I think it's a respectable career, but it, I wouldn't say it was, you know, brilliant. It was. It wasn't. It's not like outstanding. I mean, if you think of who are the who are the top managers, you know, you know, when people are saying why do English managers never get the top jobs, nobody ever then says why has Steve Bruce never been offered the Manchester United job. You know, nobody 
it's it's, it's not it's a thought that occurs to Ince, uh, you know, was quite briefly manager. Keane, Robson, you know, ended up having to. They, Steve Gibson had to hire Terry Venables. Remember to hold his hand. Yeah, Mark Hughes. Hughes did get a big job at Manchester City, and it was it didn't go well. It was a disaster. Um, and and none of these managers have really. They all seem to be of a level as well. Yeah, uh, not, you know, and none of them are particularly. None of them are like uh, tactically uh, uh, innovative. You know, it's they've it's all always, got good glares. Yeah, like that's that appears to be what the 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 the, the technique. The Ferguson technique appears to be glaring at your players. Kind of, kind of match them. Well, maybe Bruce was Bruce. He was a bit nicer. He's kind of a mm. nice guy, but you know, a lot of them are the, the sort of macho man, but not necessarily uh, brain man. You know what I mean? Not mm. necessarily. Oh, here's a, here's a bunch of great ideas. Gut man. Whereas Neville, Neville's maybe a bit of a departure from that. I mean, he's kind of hyper articulate. You know. Not, not that that necessarily is going to impress a dressing room of football players in the in the long None run. None of I mean, whom can speak English. You hear what? That's <laughs> true. In the job that we're talking about at the moment. But you know, when you think when you think about Roy Keane, I mean, he said a few cutting things or Gary Neville. Oh, God, you know, giving the impression that, uh, well, you know, I wouldn't know. I've I listened plenty to Gary Neville. I don't need to watch him on TV, kind of thing. Um, you know, he but he is he is a little bit different. I mean, he's the guy who had to be looked after by Roy Keane when Patrick Vieira was trying to bully him that time. Remember, mm. Vieira thought he could pick on on Gary Neville. Neville was like, "Oh no!" I mean, I don't, I don't know how Neville reacted. Maybe maybe Neville was secretly affronted that Roy Keane came out and looked after him as though he was a baby. You know, what maybe, I mean? maybe afterwards he was affronted. <laughs> if you know what I mean, maybe like when he sat down and thought about it, like three hours after the game finished, he was like, "Oh, wait, Roy, like you, you know, you made me look like a." Baby, there. Yeah, I, I, the I actually had I that situation say, under control. Yeah, but at the time, I would say he was relatively happy with how the thing panned out. He is, though. He does have a have a great career, really, doesn't he? I mean, not just in football terms, but also since he he left football. I mean, it's he is Mister Success, you know, mm. on, on all fronts. So he's succeeded in everything he's done. So why should this necessarily be uh, any different? But we got to move on because uh, the other big story, as Richard Keyes mentioned earlier on. The truly stunning story of yesterday was not Gary Neville uh, going to Valencia, but Liverpool Football Club uh, scoring six away to Southampton and, and going into the semi-finals of the um, League Cup. Tony, Jurgen Klopp has only been there for two months, but already seems to have had a, a profound effect. I mean, it's a, it's a completely different club, a different team uh, from the one that he took over. Uh, after watching him for this long, is there anything that you can put your finger on? Um, how is it, What is he doing differently uh, to, uh, that's led to such a dramatic uh, turnaround in, in Liverpool's um, fortunes. I think the biggest thing is he's, he's shown belief in players. Uh, if, if you go back a few months to, to Brendan Rodgers, last couple of weeks, well, probably a bit longer than that, uh, one of his mantras that, that kept coming out was that he didn't have the tools to do the job. Uh, and that kind of like a belief seeps into the dressing room. Once a player knows the managers and believes in them, and whatever the manager was saying publicly, it will have been amplified privately with all the frustration that you'll see on the training ground in games and in team talk. So that, that kind of like a belief did get through to the players. And I, I think that's what we've seen more than anything else. Jürgen Klopp come in and one of the first things he said was, uh, I, I don't want Cristiano Ronaldo, I want this group of players. And everyone laughed. It was one of those, it seems a daft remark. In many ways it is. It's a, it's a daft remark, of course. If he could have Cristiano Ronaldo, he'd, he'd want him. But, he knows he can't have him. So what's the point in pining for something that he can't have? He's got these players at least until the January transfer window and, and, and probably beyond. Uh, and so he wanted to show them that he did believe in them. And that has got through. The, the, the players believe in him and he, and, and he believes in them. And I, I just think that is what you've seen on the pitch. And the manager's given instructions and, and, it's been, and they are being followed out. Uh, absolutely. There's, there's no one who's, who's doing anything different than what the manager wants. So you, you have that combination of, of belief and indeed, and switch to a strategy, and, and and you get what we're seeing now, which is the Liverpool team, which, which as you say, is is totally transformed. I mean, Brendan Rodgers, I'm sure knew that you know football is a, is a mental game, and it's a lot of it is about belief and it's about attitude. Um, but for some reason, just wasn't able to pull it off uh, to to quite the same way. And not a lot of people can. I mean, I'm wondering what what is it you think about the way in which Jurgen Klopp works? Everybody knows this in theory. You know, it's good. You know, you want to make the players feel as though you believe in them. You want uh, <laughs> you want to send out a team that thinks it can win the game. And yet, it's such a difficult thing to do. I'm, I'm wondering what is it that that he does that uh, that seems to work so well. 
I think the first thing he does is he rise with reputation, and, and we're seeing this increasingly with, with modern footballers. They've, they've got so much, and everyone looks at the wealth and, and everything that goes with being a, a footballer. That that motivation can sometimes be an issue, and, and man management is hard. And I'd, I'd argue that it's ever been. Klopp arrives with, with the reputation of someone who not only has, has won major trophies and has, has got to the Champions League final, but with a team that was unfashionable in, in that kind at that kind of level, he also comes with a reputation of enhancing players. And I, I think as a footballer, when someone comes in and you know that, that under his predecessor, it, it hasn't been working for you, this is your chance. For some of the players, it's their last chance. There are players at Liverpool now who, if Klopp doesn't buy it, you would say that they would have to take a step down with their next move. Now you've got a number of players who, who you're looking at and saying, these look like players who are not only good enough for Liverpool, but if they did leave, they would get a good move. And I just think that, I think he brings out the ambition in players. He makes players want to play. He makes players want to play to the best of the ability. And I spoke to one of his coaches uh, who he'd worked with at Mainz early in his career, and he told me about the training regimes. He went through it, and I, I said, that sounds so physically and mentally rigorous that I wonder how long that can last. And his response to me is, yeah, but the difference with Klopp is he, he doesn't, he, he, he wins, he wins hearts and minds. He's not just a manager who, who tactically, who drives players tactically. He wins the hearts and makes them want to play for him. And I think we see that. We see that in every game. We see him with his, his arm around Jordan Ibe every single game. You see the way he comes on and reacts to Brad Smith, who made his first appearance in, in God knows how long last night. And he does have this way of getting into players' hearts and, and they do want to play for him. Mm. I mean, he's even got Daniel Sturridge playing for him now. Uh, he one of the one of the teams that he that definitely kind of has you can already see beginning to emerge at Liverpool, and it was a big feature of his time at Dortmund. Is that uh, Klopp is a kind of a mind over matter guy when it comes to injuries, uh, and he already talked about you know we decide when we're tired, no one else decides when we decide when we're tired. Um, this thing with Sturridge, then he's got to tell the difference between serious pain and just pain. Um, and and it seems like a lot, okay, a lot of the players will, will go along with that. Sturridge though is a, is a is a curious case. I mean, there can't be another player in the squad, or or maybe in the league, uh, who combines such a high level of talent with such a low pain threshold. So, how do you think the relationship between the, the two of them is developing? I I think Klopp could be the making of Sturridge. I I do think he needs a manager who basically is going to stand for no nonsense. Who's going to who's going to tell him you are fit to play. Uh, you, you, there, are, there are no options today. You have to go and play. Who will sit in the press conference and talk about his pain threshold and, and maybe get to him a little bit, maybe needle him. Klopp, Klopp said that his, his comments were misinterpreted, but that's the third time that Klopp, who has an excellent command of English and an excellent understanding of how the media works, claimed to be misinterpreted and, and, and backtrack what he's done is he's put the message out there and then controlled the message and made sure the message didn't become any more damaging than needs be. But he, he let Sturridge know. He let Sturridge know that he wanted them out there on the pitch. And you saw that last night. That Sturridge wasn't fully fit. You could tell. You could you could tell how tired he looked. You could tell that there was a time when he was taking a free kick and he, he spent about 30 seconds before and stretching his hamstring. And the, and the, and the last 10 minutes it, he was on the pitch, he was running on fumes. But he's done that because Klopp challenged him. And, and Sturridge... Maybe he needs that. Maybe he needs a manager who's going to come in and say, "I'm not going to. I'm not going to take any excuses. I'm not going to take pain as a reason you can't play. If the doctors and physios think you can play, then you're going to play." And maybe that's exactly what Sturridge needs, as I say. And it's going to be interesting one to see the. I, 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 people, the phrase that kept being used when Sturridge injured last week was was "man up," and I kept seeing them. It. Man up, which I think is uh, is considered by Liverpool officially to be hate speech. It wasn't it one of those phrases that was handed out in the leaflets. It was on that famous list. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just think this is such a complex issue. I, I, everyone gets frustrated with storage because they know what he can do, but we don't know the ins and outs. We don't know what he's telling the physios. We don't know what his pain threshold is. He he may well be. I mean, if if you go back to uh, Roy Hodgson testing his resolve, that that comment probably now looks a little different than it did at the time. But how he tested his resolve was to make him say when he didn't think he could and Sturridge got, got injured. So, so maybe he knows his body better than, than anyone else does. Maybe he knows. Maybe there's something psychosomatic. It's, it's, it's entirely speculation. But I think what we saw last night was an important breakthrough with Sturridge in Liverpool because he got, got out there and played. When I think he looked nowhere near fit. And not only did he play, he scored two fantastically well taking goals. So, yeah. so maybe that's going to be the way forward. He's going to have to get out there when he's not feeling great until eventually he will get back to his full fitness. I remember um, 
being in Istanbul when the Liverpool won the Champions League and the Liverpool supporters were unbelievable. I thought unbelievably unsympathetic towards Harry Kewell, who got in, got off injured in this, that game, and they were all celebrating winning this game, but they were all saying, "Well, I mean, Harry Kewell, let's say, just wasn't." wasn't allowed to be part of those celebrations, even though he had apparently snapped an adductor muscle, which sounds like the kind of injury that's going to stop you playing in the in the European Cup final. So it yeah, seems yeah. to me they're quite unsympathetic. But I noticed when Sturridge came on against Swansea, I, I thought he might be another falling into that Harry Kill category. He got a really good reaction, though, uh, or, or a big kind of cheer from, from around the ground. Um, I think with Klopp, maybe he's, uh, he's trying to... I mean, it, it seems like Sturridge hates being one of these... He hates it when people are turning around to him and going, Daniel, we need you to be our saviour. But when he's kind of sitting there watching a team that seems to be enjoying itself, scoring a lot of goals, he's you know kind of sickens him then to be left out of that. Maybe Klopp is trying to create the impression or, or, or trying to create Sturridge's fear of missing out rather than sort of pressure on him to have to come in and be the most important player in the team. I made a similar point uh, last week the, when Sturridge was sold against... Uh, Manchester City, and then he was going to be sub again uh, in the in the game last week against Bordeaux. And um, Sturridge wanted to play. There's no question Sturridge wants to play. And I think that was the reverse psychology that you're talking about. I think this was Klopp saying, "Yeah, you may think you're ready now, but let's wait and see." And I think it's about it's about getting him chomping at the bit. Let let let's make him desperate to get out there. And I think that's where Klopp is. Is probably a bit cleverer than most managers. And listen, he's been a player himself, so he knows he's been in dressing rooms with players who want to play and players who, who aren't so keen. So he's seen that. He's seen, he's seen what works for them. And I, I think that's coming through in a number of ways. I, I do think the difference with with Harry Kuehl, uh, to go back to that point, uh, patient snap with It wasn't just an abducted that snap that, that night. Patient snap with him. And he hadn't delivered. And he was seen as being a malingerer. Where the storage, the difference is when he plays, he does deliver. And, and that created frustration. I think that's the way that he's had to endure up to now, his frustration. I, w- I would hate to uh, be him on Twitter when his injuries are announced because he does get absolute dog's abuse. Mm. Uh, and I, I tweeted the weekend about Jerry Byrne playing in the 1965 Cup final with a broken collarbone. And the amount of people who made reference to Sturridge straight away was staggering. And, and he just thought, that, that is Sturridge's life. That is what he has to put up with if his body lets him down in any way. Uh, but I do think it's, to be generous, it is born of frustration. People want to see him play football because he can do the kind of things that he did last night. Mm. Just lastly, uh, Tony, the one, uh, another kind of pattern that, that people are, are mentioning uh, since Klopp's took, taken over Liverpool is the fact that they seem to be better away from home uh, than at home. I mean, these, these great wins at Chelsea, Manchester City and now Southampton, um, you know, who have turned into a strong side over the last couple of years. To beat them 6-1 is is no uh, small achievement. Um, it's not really matched by fluent performances at home. I mean, you've, you've seen these home matches. What do, you think, uh, what do you think is the difference there? I, I think there's a few differences. I, I think I'd make the Swansea match an exception because I think you have to take into account the conditions, which are probably about the worst I've seen a football match played in this year. The wind was ridiculous. And, and people just literally couldn't control the pass. And they were over it in the passes when, when they thought the wind was strong and under-hitting them at other, t- other times. The corners going directly out for goal kicks and stuff like that. So that was, that was a game you just had to win. But in general, the point stands. It absolutely stands. Uh, I, I think there's a few reasons. I think the atmosphere at Anfield is negative and has been for some time. Uh, yeah, you, of- you get the impression Klopp has kind of been surprised by how... Uh, how terrible it is! He kind of expected it was going to be like Dortmund. It's not like that at all. No, it's not. It's it's not. It's, it's a negative crowd. It's it's not. It, it's Liverpool's crowd known as being the twelfth man. It's not. It's basically it affects the men on the pitch in not a good way. Uh, players make mistakes. <laughs> they get let known. That's always been the case. Don't get me wrong. But the support that that Liverpool's probably renowned for is, isn't there at the minute. And there, there are many reasons for that. And that's a, that's another argument. Another. Do they day. need to get someone in with a drum? Like, I mean, that's what they do at Dortmund. They just have a guy with a big drum and, uh, and you know, flares and smoke and, and whatnot. And, and he kind of manages to uh, keep things going, even when the game gets a bit boring. Um, it's more from, I think they need to get a load of kids in. I think it's, it's as basic as that. You've got a 45,000 stadium full of me, old men. Grumbling old men. Yeah, it's... it's, it's You've got 28,000 season ticket holders. You don't get younger. We, we age, obviously, all the time. And, and the people who have season tickets at Liverpool have had them for a long time. They're in the same seats. They're set in the ways. They're used to seeing great Liverpool sides and seeing inconsistent ones. And, and, and their grumbling does, does come out. 
you also have the problem of, of day trip and tourists, and I, I do, and a difference should be stressed there between day trip and tourists and supporters from other parts of the world. Liverpool doesn't have a, have a tourist market that is attractive to the game. That that could be at Anfield one day and Old Trafford the next, and that that is part of modern football. But again, that's not going to help the atmosphere. Uh, but I, I think in terms of the team, the, 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 the probably more fundamental issues. I think I think the lack. Of forwards has been a major problem. He's basically been getting by with just Christian Benteke, who, who doesn't run in behind. And if, if you've got that, you're not going to stretch defences at home. Uh, they also don't have, and, and I think this is the most shocking thing about Liverpool's transfer policy over the last couple of years they do not have a midfield passer. They don't have, have someone who can control the game, control the tempo of the game, can open up spaces in front. They haven't got that type of player. And when teams come and sit deep and get players behind the ball, you, a, a player like that is an absolute must. Does Emery Chan not display some signs? I mean, I saw Rude Hullard uh, was criticising him yesterday, saying he's, or not yesterday, rather, Sunday, was actually picked him out and said, what does Emery Chan think he's doing? This is completely useless. He's kind of s- standing there between the central defenders doing nothing. Uh, but then again... You know, he he played in Sturridge with a with a beautiful ball the other um, the other night. He he does show as though he, he suggests maybe he's got some of the skills to to become that type of player. If maybe he hasn't figured out what exactly that type of player is supposed to do on the field. Yeah, I think I think he's still developing his play. The pass he played to Sturridge against Southampton was, was probably the best pass I've seen by Liverpool player this season. Uh, I think I think what you're seeing there is the difference that a player who runs in behind makes because it's Sturridge's movement that creates the opportunity for to chance to make that pass and he hasn't had that kind of movement until last night so so maybe we'll see that, that there are Liverpool players who are better in those kind of situations but we'll only see it when Sturridge is, is on the pitch uh, and that to me is a concern uh, because if you're relying on Sturridge as we know with his fitness record that that, 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 is, a, that is a problem it's a weakness but uh, I do think Liverpool do have better players and the better players will show more when Sturridge is on the pitch that's just the, the nature of, of the type of player he is but I do think Liverpool could would still benefit greatly from having the kind of player that, that dominates games with his passing. I think Chan's as much about energy, about movement, uh, about about tackling. And, and I saw Rune Hullard's comments on that today, and, and I was I was pretty dumbfounded. Uh, and I, it made me realise why he, he struggled so badly at Newcastle. If he wants a defensive midfielder to, to raid at every opportunity, so I, th- I think Chan's improving, and, and long may that continue. But. I do still think Liverpool could do with that kind of player who controls the tempo games, and if he becomes that player, fair enough. But but if if he doesn't, I think in the short term we need someone who does. Yeah, it's great. Well, listen, it's, it looks like it's going to be a pretty interesting few weeks. Uh, Liverpool, this uh, if the if club can keep the momentum going, Tony Barrett. Hopefully, we'll be talking to you at some stage. Cheers, good to speak to you, gents. And Randolph sends it long. That's his tight outside. Shane Long. Shane Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Moyer. Long Sailor, Hector. And there is the star. The Ehrenführer with 1-0 in the 70th minute. The minute. Magnifique. Portée par un public en liesse. L'Irland peut croire à l'exploit. Grâce à son super sub. Shane Long. Shane Long. Well, 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 look at the date, Kieran. Third mm. of December, the third of the twelfth, twenty fifteen. I've only got used to writing twenty fifteen and it'll be twenty sixteen. There so. it is, out the door again, Ken. Yeah, but Well, it it's it's three weeks today until Christmas Eve, Ken. Yeah. So that's something for you to think about. That's a significant date, isn't it? Well of a of a sort. I mean if you're if you're buying Christmas presents. I mean you don't want to be that guy wandering up and down the major shopping thoroughfare in your city or town. Grafton Street, if you're here in Dublin, yeah. uh, O'Connell Street, Shop Street, yeah. O'Connell Street again, if you're in Limerick. We've all been that guy, you know. But if you were, if you were to give someone advice as to how to avoid that, God, imagine if you were just two clicks away from solving all of your Christmas present needs. <laughs> just go out to secondcaptains.com, order the Second Captains uh, Sports Annual Volume One, as read and beloved by Jerry Flannery, amongst others. Yeah, uh, check out Jerry Flannery's tweet today. I mean, you can't get any better than that. Yeah. Um, you can also get it in Eason's and, uh, and all good bookshops. Book but imagine this, this feeling of smug self-satisfaction that could sink over. You could just, after you'd finished completing, you know, click, click, you know, literally too quick, yeah. uh, plus a little bit of typing process, um, you could just sit back in your chair. I imagine both hands kind of clasped around your mug of 
coffee or whatever, mm. just with this smug John Lewis music playing in your head. And there it is, it's done. Yeah, and uh, and, and problem solved, really. So I guess that's uh, that's something to think about. Mm. Um, Owen McDevitt will be back on Monday. His book plugs are usually a lot smoother than that. They usually are. He, book he's, plugs. He's a lot more familiar with... Uh, with the whole process um, that I am. But, and, and, you know, look, it's an underrated... It's, people don't realise how difficult it is, frankly. Mm. I mean, I'm sitting here talking absolute nonsense. People are embarrassed to be listening to it. I can see that you're actually slightly flushed with embarrassment. I, I just think we should probably end it now. Yeah, I think we're going we're gonna to end it. So I want to say it's goodbye from me. And it's good my, goodbye from me. And thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. That's what Ken. we usually do. Yes. And, and thank you for listening, and goodbye. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 